Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. On a warm day in October of 1982, John DeLorean boarded a flight from New York to Los Angeles with one goal in mind, to make $24 million and save his beloved DeLorean Motor Company. The DeLorean car had hit the market a year before, and between the harsh critics and lack of sales, John was in trouble with a lot of investors. When the plane touched down, John's contact handed over 59 pounds of cocaine, still only a quarter of the amount he needed to complete his master plan. John DeLorean pumped himself up, he was ready to become a drug kingpin, all in the name of saving his company. He opened the door to a seedy hotel, but instead of the millions of dollars he expected on the other side, he found himself face to face with the guns and handcuffs of the FBI. The G-men demanded John DeLorean put up his hands and drop the giant bag of cocaine. The 1980s were wild and the supercars of that era were no exception. Automakers were operating by Mad Max rules. Anything goes, and damn the consequences. Brainstorming sessions stopped just short of strapping rockets to the back of a Cadillac Brougham and aiming it at the moon. Supercar designers were wringing every horsepower out of every valve and relying on prayers to ensure that no one died in the process. Today on Past Gas, how did the race to breaking 200 miles per hour in a production car set the tone for a decade? How did cars like the gorgeous Lamborghini Countach, the Ferrari Testarossa, and the beastly Roof Yellowbird become potent symbols for an unhinged 10 years of excess? Pack the trunk with coke, blast some guns and roses, throw in the Oakleys. I pity the fool who isn't ready for an all-80s, all-supercar episode of Pass Gas. Pass Gas Podcast. It's about cars, it's not about ports. You know where you are? You in the jungle, baby! You gonna die! In the jungle! Welcome to the jungle! Knees, knees, knees! Knees? I wanna watch you bleed! Dude, freaking Zoom just popped up a little notification that was like, are you playing music? Uh, whoa! You want to set up professional audio in audio what? settings? Dang. No way! Oh, nah, dude, that's pretty Zoom's good. listening in. They're saying, "Hey, we're gonna listen to James every every word." Zoom is like, "Dang, is Axel Rose a guest on Past <laughs> Gas this week?" <laughs> Very impressive, James. Thanks, bro. I think that's one of those songs that I never have to hear again in my life and be Are okay. Are you kidding me? Nope. Welcome to the jungle? Yeah. I don't need to hear it ever again. Same with Hotel California. Hotel California is a dog sh song. Uh, don't Stop Believing. <laughs> Same with uh, We Are the Champions or Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, we Are the Champions is good. 
Okay. Anything that was featured on Glee, never need to hear it again. It got pounded into my 2011 brain because for some reason, everything that was on Glee got played 50 more times at any high school event. That sounds like a generational problem. Yeah, I, well, I agree with I agree with the sentiment, but I like those songs. My song, <laughs> yeah. Be, I only I only agree because I understand Tone Loke's uh, "Bust a Move." Oh. Anytime <laughs> I hear that, I've been hearing that for thirty years on ads and everything. It's such a like white person like lame <laughs> ad song that it's like, come on, like just f- it's stop like, playing this song. You know what song I never need to hear again? What? Yeah, by Usher and Little John. No, that's I like a banger. that song. No, I, that played at like every junior high dance. Yeah, uh, it's like I the attended. wedding song. Like, yeah, yeah. Or like anytime sure. when I <laughs> <laughs> I like the song. I like the song because in the beginning, Usher says "Peace up, a town down." And you know me, being from Atascadero, California, <laughs> we called a you know we called it a town. So it uh-huh. felt like Usher was talking to me with that song. Like he that was, song he was, was talking about us. Atlanta, Georgia. I know, but it felt like Atascadero. I, I like that song because the, that was like one of the first mashups I ever made. I I mixed the vocals from Yeah with the music from Sunday Bloody Sunday, which is probably uh, disgraceful, but it turned out really good. I would like to hear that mashup. I hate you too. I wish that you two would get in a plane crash and die. You two was like no. my favorite band. <laughs> <laughs> you two was one of my first favorite bands. I can uh, see that. Up. I mean, yeah, yeah. I get it. I get it. And guess what? I went back and listened to one of their greatest hits album. Yeah. Yeah. They Is got some bangers, slap. dude. They, they got do. some bangers, dude. They do slap. UT <laughs> does slap. I don't like them. Like, they seem annoying on a personal level, but they got some bangers. Like, New Year's Day has that incredible, yeah. like, uh, intro with, you know, the edge, dude. He's He uses <laughs> effects, James. You know what I'm kind of learning from this conversation? Is we're all sick of songs because of... You know, they got overplayed in our lives, yeah. like at bar mitzvahs and middle school dances. Uh-huh. But all of those songs got played a lot for a reason because they're bangers. Yeah. Just like I hope today's episode is a banger. Welcome to Past Gas. I'm your host, Nolan Sykes, joined as always by my co host. We got Joe Weber over there. What is, what's my phrase again? Keep it. <laughs> <laughs> I had to think about it. Dude, that's a sick producer tech. What's my phrase again? just totally just what's my phrase again what's my phrase again apathetic to their job like wait a minute what what am i doing here what's my phrase phrase again again? and then just like sickest beat you've ever heard i i I have like trained my brain to wait for james to say something really dumb before (laughs) what well that's why yeah (laughs) what dude excuse me i got caught off guard oh dang dang dude pardon me our other (laughs) co-host we got we got James Pumphrey in the building as well. Ooh, I want to watch you bleed. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Welcome to Past Gas, the the world's number one uh, middle school dance music podcast. Speaking of um, eighty, like eighties disappointing guys. Like, can you like? I think the world would be a much better place. If Axl Rose didn't become like a huge disappointment, do you think he would have changed the world for the better if he was uh, would have stuck to music and put out Chinese Democracy earlier? <laughs> yeah, I don't think he would have changed the world, but I think my life would have improved <laughs> just overall. <laughs> yeah, just like uh, just like constantly, like my whole like adolescence and then early adult life was like in the back of my head. It was like, man, that guy really. It really sucks, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it really everything is connected. Well, now you're stuck here with us. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, I think on that note, let's talk about some supercars for sure. Super. Wait, let's let's throw out our favorite '80s supercars real quick. Oh, that's just a good before idea, we start. Joe. Okay, go ahead. You first. Well, I didn't think I it, <laughs> I, I got to think about it. Once <laughs> all right, all right, okay, all right. First, first thing that pops into my head is the yellow bird. Just. Okay. Oh, cool. It it's beautiful. I'd say if I had to drive one every day, Yellowbird would be it. It's not a bad like choice for sure. I uh I DM'd Roof two days ago. Yeah. What'd any they say? response? Yeah. And I was like, Y'all got any long term loaners? <laughs> <laughs> uh I think the the Diablo came out in eighty nine, right? 
Ooh. Uh, yeah. That sounds I'd about to, right. I'd have to go with that. I think that's a 90s. That I think that counts as 90s. I think I think you're right, but it also came out in '89. Yeah. So that yeah. <laughs> so few. Uh, um, so like, but you would you would daily that even though people have talked oh, about how. No, I would probably okay. not. No, 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 no. I've heard that it's not very comfortable to daily. That's why. Uh, yeah, I think. Oh, I'm sorry, it came out in 1990. My bad. Never mind. I, it's not even right. I don't like. I'm not really a huge fan of the Countach, to be honest. Well, you don't have to. You can pick a, another car too. Yeah. <laughs> ah, supercar, supercar, eighties, eighties. I'm gonna be... like a Testarossa or something. Testarossa is my pick. Yeah, Testarossa is pretty sick. Be honest, guys. I don't really know a lot about these eighties supercars because you're so f- young. We get it. <laughs> yeah, yep. It's a little uh, before my time. The eighties. So. <laughs> is he saying skin a knee? This one really stings. Well, I'm glad we uh got that clarified. Let's let's get into the show today. All right. So we've already covered why the 1990s were the ultimate decade for supercars, from the McLaren F1 to the Diablo, which I already mentioned, and the Bugatti EB110, as well as the weird Vector W8. They dominated every metric possible, and they did it without anti-lock braking systems or nanny tech ruining all the fun and keeping you alive. (laughs) But how did we get to the pinnacle of peak performance? It all started with cocaine. Yeah. Buckets and buckets of the stuff. But the cocaine symbolized something. A spirit of excess and exuberance in the automotive world, as manufacturers and consumers alike rocketed their way out of the great malaise era of driving. By the 1980s, supercars led the charge on the quest to make production cars fun again. Like the moment leading to all technological advancements, the 80s started with a distinct challenge in mind. To break the 200 mile per hour barrier in a production car. The race to 200 was vicious. Feelings and people got hurt. Technology got pushed to the breaking point. And then it was broke. (laughs) This wasn't speed trials on some salt flat in some weird looking spaceship. No, the goal was that for the first time in history, people would be able to buy a car capable of hitting 200 miles per hour that they could also drive to buy groceries with the AC cranked up. And for that amazing privilege... They were willing to pay a lot of cash. I just, just reading it now, because I know this story, I've heard it a million times, but just reading it is insane to me. Like, why would you ever need to hit 200 miles per hour? Because it's, cool. it's there. It's super cool. Because it's there. Yeah, I think it's great. I think it's a good goal. But where would you ever be able to hit 200 miles per hour unless you're going to like Las Vegas? I don't know. It's it's cool. It's cool. I'll leave it at that. It's all about having something that's capable of doing something even if you never do it. Anyway, the race to 200 started with a man named Nicola Materazzi and a little company called Ferrari. I was just thinking about 200 miles an hour. What's the fastest Ooh. you've ever driven? Uh, <clears throat> one, 136. Yeah, I hit 117 in my dad's Eclipse. <laughs> I love it. That sounds like a high school drug dealer bragging. <laughs> uh, funny you say that. <laughs> the first time the 200 mile per hour land speed record was broken was on March 29th, just nine days after Nolan's birthday, 1927. <laughs> a full 60 years before the Ferrari F40 was put into production. The car driven by Sir Henry Seagrave was an absolute beast and definitely was not intended to be driven in any sort of real life environment. The dude's a knight. The car, nicknamed the Slug, (laughs) was built by Sunbeam Car Company in Wolverhampton, UK and was powered by a 22.5 liter V12 aircraft engine that put out just over 1,000 horsepower. The car was trailered to Daytona Beach, where by some miracle it managed to not take flight and wound up hitting 203 miles per that's, hour. That's terrifying. On, On sand? sand. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. 
That's yeah. that dude deserves to be a knight for sure. Yeah. Seagrave, more like Sandgrave. Yeah, it's like now everybody's like a knight, like Patrick Stewart. It's like Patrick Stewart, like you only pretended to be a captain. You know? <laughs> <laughs> But the fellas over at, I yeah, acting's hard. He's good at it. But the fellas over at Ferrari were a little more refined. Materazzi had an idea that would revolutionize motorsports and daily drivers. He took a long, hard look at Group B, commonly known as the golden era of rally racing, and decided that Scuderia Guy Fieri would use those ideals <laughs> to build a car so bonkers that it would change history. Materazzi went to the higher-ups at Ferrari and was told, a no-away, but <laughs> it wasn't a real a no-away. It was more a uh, go ask your mother uh, kind of no-away. <laughs> I committed to that, and I'm really regretting it. <laughs> because at the end of the day, he was given permission to develop the GTO Evolucione, which means evolution in Italian, if you didn't know. But only... <laughs> I figured. I figured. But only if they did all of their work outside of regular business hours, a real skunk works project. The next year, Group B was suddenly shut down because the cars were too fast and it cost too many people their lives, both drivers and spectators. Back at Ferrari, the death of Group B left five 288 GTO Evolucione sitting in the company's garage with no real purpose. Enzo Ferrari convinced Materazzi <laughs> that they could keep the base concept of the car and make the whole thing roadworthy. Enzo Ferrari was getting old and he wanted to leave a legacy behind other than decades of <laughs> Ferrari designs and a million billion race wins. So the Ferrari F40 concept was born. Materazzi and Ferrari tapped Leonardo Fiotavanti and Pietro Camardella of Pininfarina to design the... Oh, that is... I think, that, like, come on, guys. Like, that's like an, like, who am I? Logic? <laughs> <laughs> who can relate? <laughs> Materazzi and Ferrari tap Leonardo Fittoravanti. Piazza Camarada. It sounds like a racehorse announcer. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, from Pininfarina to design the overall look, feel, and function of the car. Pininfarina were the people who handled the design of cars ranging from the spectacular Ferrari 375mm to the F40 successor, the F50. We've talked about Pininfarina as much as any other company uh, yeah. ever on, you know, across all donuts. They stuff. pop like, up a lot. They are the sh. The design house. Yeah. Materazzi and Enzo Ferrari had no doubt in their abilities. In just under a year, the team took the Group B cars and made them into the scorching hot production F40 and then churned out 400 of them. Oh, yeah. In 1988, Ferrari invited a group of journalists to the Ferrari test track and reviews were mixed. Gordon Murray called the car exciting but added, whereas the other cars feel tall and solid. This one's like a big go-kart with a plastic body on it. <laughs> God, it got real sexual. <laughs> car and driver called the car a mix of sheer terror and raw excitement, which sounds exactly like a big go-kart with a plastic body on it. Is this go Gordon Murray? That's not T. Gordon Murray, is it? Uh, like T as in the Gordon Murray? No, T is like the guy who helped develop the F1, the mclaren f1 i'm looking that up right now because that caught my attention uh let's see no that was gordon that was the gordon murray that's him uh yeah that, that was him saying cool. that about that car oh yeah i didn't realize he was a journalist at some point i think he just did it for i don't think he was i think he was just like doing a guest kind of yeah okay. analysis for sense. motor trend he also said a lot of nice things about the car but Ferrari didn't care what anyone else thought. They never do. Their marketing department put out a statement saying, the F40 is for the most enthusiastic of our owners who want nothing but sheer performance. And that's what they got. Kind of. Ferrari themselves claimed to break 200 miles per hour in the F40, but no magazine or racing organization was ever able to recreate that magical 201 mile per hour claim that the F40 was putting down. In March of 1987, Roden threw a little party at the Volkswagen Aralesen test track near Wolfsburg. Uh, they were. This is a really famous like race day. This is why the yellow bird is yellow. 
Um, mm-hmm. They were there to find out what current production car was the fastest. Paul Frera and Phil Hill, two champions of motorsports, handled the white knuckle driving. At the end of the day, one little car stole the spotlight away from Ferrari, and its name was the Roof Yellowbird. <gasps> tweet, tweet, pfft. Tweet, tweet. Ah, <laughs> uh, I thought I thought I put it in. <laughs> click, click. Ow. <laughs> uh, before we get into the, the Yellowbird, I think the F40 is my favorite 80s supercar. It's uh, a good one. It's it's kind of a cliched pick, I would say, but you know I've got to see a couple of them in person, and yeah. they're just so cool. They're just they're amazing. so special. They're not too like they're not too ridiculous looking. You can tell that it just like means business, you know. Yeah, like knowing yeah. that it was developed, you know, initially for Group B, and then like modified into a street car from that. You get makes it. a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah it like, makes oh, a lot of sense. Okay, yeah, uh huh. <laughs> During the 1987 road and track proving party, the Roof Yellowbird absolutely dominated the scene. A gaggle of automotive journalists were testing more than a dozen supercars, and only two of them broke through the 200-mile-per-hour barrier, and neither were the F40. First, the Koenig RS Turbo Porsche hit 201 miles per hour before a snapped fan belt sent it limping back to the garage. Never heard of that car. But then, the Roof Automotive Group, spelled R-U-F, headed by Alois Roof Sr., smoked the millions of dollars worth of Italian steel and leather present in the lineup of competitors. On that fateful day, the little 3.4-liter twin-turbo flat-six utilized all 470 of its ponies to reach a not-safe-for-journalism top speed of 211 miles per hour. We got to drive... uh... 450 horsepower 911 yeah the 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 gunther works uh yeah. 911 and that was all naturally aspirated as well oh, it was so fun great car very nerve-wracking <laughs> yeah i was like i this is worth more than i can ever make in my lifetime i'm <laughs> i'm just gonna stay to the speed limit i uh stepped the rear end out on a pagani Wyra. Jeez. Oh, yeah. That scares me. And I just saw generations of my family going into debt. <laughs> <laughs> and Insurance like, would have covered it. Yeah. And Horacio Pagani <laughs> just like wagging his finger at you in your head. <laughs> the Yellowbird was the definition of production car record breaker. It was an old school air cooled 911 stripped down to a minimal 2,579 pounds. Whoa. Which gives it a better power to weight ratio than a modern. 911 Turbo S. With the turbos turned down, the car drives just like any other Carrera, but maybe a bit more nimble and stiff. But once those spinny boys spooled up, the yellow bird went from big bird to bird of prey. Roof Sr. was dreaming of building a vehicle that hit prototype racer level performance in a daily driver package, and he did it. Today, the yellow bird spec match up with a well specced Camaro SS. Both push around 470 horsepower and hit 0 to 60 in around 4 seconds. But the Camaro weighs in around a half ton chunkier. Of course, with a modern Camaro, you'd get navigation and heated seats, usable AC, and all sorts of other life amenities. But it just goes to show how far ahead of the time the Yellowbird was. Why is it so much more impressive to say half ton than a thousand pounds? Because a ton is... I don't know. I've, uh, yeah, I've, uh, I've noticed that as well. It's kind of kind of weird. It's like... I drank a half a six pack last night. <laughs> well, as cool as these cars were, the 80s wasn't all about cracking 200 miles per hour. It was also about aesthetics. Ooh. It may <laughs> seem a little brash and tacky nowadays, but the 80s aesthetic was all about the future. Lasers, bright colors, big hair, and puffy shoulder pads. It was all about the individual. And it was all about peacocking your way into the boardroom do a little business transaction before peacocking your way to the beach to play some oiled up volleyball with the boys. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> I was born in the wrong time. Sounds great. <laughs> Say what you want about the 1980s, but it wasn't boring. The in-your-face color schemes and angles upon angles of hot pink shapes has led to some interesting car designs. Speaking of in-your-face color schemes, uh, the reason that the roof yellow bird was yellow is because in Germany during that season, like they knew it was going to be a cloudy day. 
like it was like June gloom. Um, and they needed a car that would like, they were going to paint it black, but they were like, the journalists are going to be there. This was like a big, like, yeah. like magazine day. They're going to take pictures of it. And we really want to make a name and like really stand out. And they're like, well, what about red? They're like, well, all the Ferraris are going to be red. Yeah. And so they were like, what about yellow? And they were like, I don't know. And we actually talked to Alois Roof on the phone. Yeah. And he, he that told was us. That was really that, cool. Yeah. He told us a story. He was like, yeah, man, back then, cars weren't yellow. The only cars <laughs> that were yellow were cabs. Yeah. So like they basically painted the 911, the color of a taxi cab, <laughs> uh, so that they would stand out in pictures. That's uh, awesome. Against, uh, and against the Ferraris. I always thought that it was at like um, the Nardo ring that they tested these, but that was a different no, track day. So Volkswagen, oddly enough, has like the fastest track. That's in the where world. they do the Bugatti testing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, like Volkswagen, I don't know why, um, probably Nazi reasons, has <laughs> like the longest straight in the world. So, all of the top speed production car stuff happens at that uh, Volkswagen track. Hmm. Uh, we we got to see a, a a yellow bird, or we shot one for bumper to bumper back in the day. Yeah, uh, but it was really cool to go. We got to go to Bruce Myers collection over there in Beverly Hills, yeah. very nondescript location. Oh my god, it was um, so cool, and just got to get so up close with it. Very just so cool. Did it you- wasn't even like being featured. It was just on a loading dock, like in yeah. the basement. Because of that video, we have a standing invitation from Roof. Uh, they DM'd me and they were like, thanks for shooting with the car. You're welcome to visit our headquarters in Pfaffenhausen anytime. Pfaffenhausen. Yeah. So the next, time, Pfaffenhausen. next time we're in Pfaffenhausen. Yeah, yeah we're coming. We're coming, roof. roof. Just don't go to Fappenhausen. I, no, don't. I accidentally <laughs> went to Fappenhausen. <laughs> we'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you think of 80s supercar design, more likely than not, the Lamborghini Countach is the car you see in your mind's eye. Of course. (laughs) Everything about it screamed the 1980s. First of all, it was just a total doorstop wedge of a car. When you drew car shapes as a kid, this is what came out. No, I drew a Mercury Grand Marquis because that's what my mom had. (laughs) It was easy to draw. (laughs) Nice. The angled, yeah, you either do the three box design or you do the wedge. Yeah. The angled wedge of a supercar designed by the world-renowned Gruppo Bertone also had insane vertical open doors and the look of a Tom Cruise piloted fighter jet. Speaking of beach volleyball, every pimply teenager wanted a Countach. 
Yeah. An entire industry popped up to sell posters of a beautiful woman leaning against the same Rosso Siviglia rot or bright red colored Countach. The earliest Countaches pushed 375 horsepower, while the final version of the naturally aspirated V12 just passed the 450 horsepower mark and weighed 3,000 pounds, a whole 500 pounds beefier than the Yellowbird. While this pushed the supercar to a 4.7 second 0 to 60, the Italian Stallion wasn't all about performance. And compared to the Yellowbird, it felt like a Bentley inside. The interior at first glance comes off like something you'd see in a Fiero. It's all boxy right angles. But upon closer inspection, it's easy to see the care and quality that went into the construction. The interiors are not molded GM plastic swoops. They're hand-stitched artisanal displays of craftsmanship which is insane considering how chunky everything looks while the interior of a porsche 959 looks like an homage to a roadster from the 60s the countach interior looks wholly unique and different and it fits the uh so i don't know about back then i assume it's the same but now lamborghini only gets their leather from this one like ranch elmo yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh, and they don't use barbed wire. Yeah, because it's it marks the yeah. It'll hide. scar the cow's skin, and that'll translate to the leather. How often do cows really run into fences, though? Turns Why out did you a say lot. that like like Fred Durst? <laughs> <laughs> Why they always running into fences? <laughs> At the Lamborghini factory, which is like surprisingly small, there's like. Two little ladies, like little Italian ladies, looking at all the leather. Whoa! To make sure there's no uh, imperfections in it. I'm well, I'm not sure if uh, Lamborghini does this, but do they have like one of those stations where they'll mark if there's any imperfections, and then like a, a laser will scan it and then cut oh. the, the pieces like perfectly, but also avoiding those areas. <laughs> it's the same situation as that, but instead of a laser, it's two old ladies. And if something is marred, they'll circle it with chalk, like a grease Yeah, pen. exactly. And then the laser avoids that area when cutting. No, they oh. cut everything by hand still. That seems yeah. like it takes so much longer. That's why they're so expensive. <laughs> they actually put a limit on how many cars they'll make a day. Oh, that's cool. And that's what the Countach and Lamborghini is all about. The Countach could get smoked by a Corvette, but that doesn't matter. It's a car that is quick, but feels faster. At 35, you feel like you're cruising at 60. When you're standing still, you feel like you're on top of the world. It's a nod and a wink that says, hey, (laughs) I'm rich and hilarious. And people (laughs) will never tire of finding new ways to shout that message from their luxurious rooftops. Just ask Russell Brand. Does he have a Countach? No, I don't know. He's just rich and hilarious. (laughs) You think he's I think he's funny in Saving, uh, what is it, Sarah Silverman? Yeah, Saving Sarah Silverman. <laughs> saving sa- no, saving what is Sarah it? Silverman. Uh, getting over Sher- Sarah Marshall. <laughs> forgetting Sarah Marshall, forgetting <laughs> yeah. Sarah Silverman. Of course, we can't forget about Lamborghini's perennial sparring partner, Ferrari. While Ferrari was working after hours to build the F40, during the school day, Enzo and the team were cranking out their newest moneymaker, the Testarossa. While the F40 pushed as fast as possible to break 200 miles per hour and freak out automotive journalists, the Testarossa was built to be the car favored by drug dealers and Wall Street dudes. <laughs> it cost half of what the F40 cost and had 100 less horsepower, but it was slick as hell. Yeah, I'm just looking at it. Looks like a tiger tried to get it, but it couldn't because oh, the Testarossa was too yeah. strong. Got those big old intakes on the side. Oh, it is yeah, also yeah. the car from OutRun. And Cruising USA? Uh, nothing in Cruising USA was licensed, but it's I think they, Yeah, they modeled it after that. Before the third season of Miami Vice launched, Ferrari had been launching some lawsuits at replica builders. And the mechanics at Miami Vice were supremely guilty because they had a couple of old C3 Corvettes dressed up as Daytona Spiders. <laughs> The, the lawyers for the show wanted zero trouble, and Ferrari were looking to cut a deal because of the show's popularity. So in exchange for blowing up the fake spiders, <laughs> uh, which they literally they shot them with missiles on the show, Ferrari handed over a pristine 1986 white Ooh. Testarossa. Look, are you going to blow up the cars and then the, the two 
detectives they're gonna go and pee on the fire the- and they're gonna say <laughs> oh i hated these cars <laughs> uh we're not gonna do that <laughs> the, the testarossa arrived at just the right time in the 1980s so much so that every single one made was sold there was even a five-year waiting list for the sexy supercar at the time its specs were respectable but today, they barely cracked BMW's entry-level M2, somewhat entry-level, I guess. In fact, the M2 will hit 0-60 to 60 a second faster than the Testarossa for a whole lot less money. But I will say that Testarossa will look a lot cooler doing it. Even though the M2 is very, very, it's a cool car. Cool car. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think those should be compared. The Testarossa was cemented as an absolute icon of the big hair era. And Miami Vice went on to inspire everything from Grand Theft Auto Vice City to pretty much every cop show that followed in its powerboat-driven wake. The, I've never actually seen Miami Vice. The pilot to Miami Vice is one of the best things ever made. Really? It's so good. Michael Mann produced it. Oh. It's Ooh. just, like, so sick. And, like, it, and like the fact that it was on TV in, like, the yeah. 80s, like, like now big-budget TV is sort of having a heyday right now with like game of thrones and like the lord yeah. of the Rings stuff and mayor of east town yeah yeah but in miami vice uh it's just it's so good and there's like this moment where like they're driving in the ferrari and they got like mm-hmm. a shotgun and then like the dude like what's his name uh don johnson he's like yeah. he's like pull over and he like goes to a payphone and he's just like we don't know what he's doing and the, like this woman just answers the phone he's like hey what we had, it was special, right? And she's like, yeah. And he's like, tight, click. And then he's just like going to a gunfight. It was so Ooh. cool. <laughs> like just weird like 80s violence. It was cool. Yeah. And like uh, tough guy sentimentality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey, what we had, it was special, right? He's like, yeah. Cool, I can die now. <laughs> While the Testarossa was inspiring movie stars and rich guys, the Porsche 959 was inspiring people who wanted to take driving fast to the next level. The 959 was the antithesis to everything the Testarossa stood for. But this wasn't the jacked-up, roided-out roof yellow bird that was built as an F-40 killer. This was a refined rocket that you could drive to dinner and let the valet park, though... Don't ever let the valet park your 959. Remember Ferris Bueller? Rest in peace to that (laughs) fake Ferrari 250 GT California. That's fake? Yeah. Good. When it came down to what was under the deck lid, the 959 was a masterpiece of futuristic technology that took the rest of the world two decades to catch up to. It featured fully adjustable suspension stiffness and ride height from the cabin and the first ever PSK all-wheel drive system and a super advanced water-cooled motor, which wouldn't be seen on another Porsche until 1997. This We shot one for Bumper to Bumper like two years ago, and this was like one of the most striking cars I've ever been up close with. Mm-hmm. It was just so like cool and the angles were perfect. And yeah, the interior the cabin so was so sick. Yeah. Yeah. It was like what, a dream my, car. Like one of my favorite features was the the interior. Uh, yeah. They had some really interesting material choices and stitching and patterns for the seats, which I always thought were yeah, really weren't cool. Weren't they like they gray cloth? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And like alternating patterns. Mm-hmm. It's very cool. Porsche interiors from the 80s are sick. Oh, no, wait. No, this, this car had the three-tone leather. The back of the seat was like silver leather that was three-tone. Oh, yeah. Silver leather it is was, a move. Yeah, it's very yeah. cool. Let me get some silver leather pants. Like, uh... <laughs> <laughs> what if next, next shoot day I show up? Like, we're getting COVID tests, and I just like show up with like silver leather pants and a zero shirt as you like, walk up. <laughs> yeah, like a zero shirt. Like, uh, what's his name? Billy, Billy Corgan. Corgan. Yeah. <laughs> But the truly shocking thing about the 959 wasn't its blistering 0-60 to times or its comfy bolstered silver leather seats. It was that this little monster was designed to do 200 miles per hour off-road. I love that. It was also built uh, as part of the Group B rule set that inspired a lot on this list, as well 
as a lot of death and destruction, which is why, again, Group B is banned. Another shocking factoid about the 959 is that it sold for around 225000 1980s dollars, which is about $730,000 in today's money. But it cost the German company more than 500000 1980s bucks to get each car off the assembly line, making it one of the most effective loss leaders in car history. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. While Porsche was breaking records by dumping money into a black hole while following Group B rules, Americans were doing what Americans do, starting with a Chevy V8 and building from there. The legendary Corvette builder and horsepower tweaker extraordinaire Reeves Calloway was looking for a challenge in the late 1980s, and that challenge was the sledgehammer. Sledgehammer. Like all custom car builders, he wanted to set a record of his own, as he's always done up to this point starting with Chevy's fiberglass sports car, the Corvette. Specifically, the nicely wedge-shaped C4 with specs that would compete fiercely with a 2020 Honda Accord. <laughs> Cars are good nowadays, guys. I don't think we we take it for granted. Cars yeah, are like great. really good. Callaway had a vision for the two-door sports car. He wanted insane, streetable, and reliable power by building up a turbocharged Chevy V8 and he wanted the car to remain comfy along the way. He got to work and tapped another legend, Tall Deutschman, to handle the bodywork. <laughs> Did you say Tall? Oh, uh, Paul. Paul? Yeah. Okay, Tall Deutschman. Tall Deutschman would be like, his name is Tall German Guy. Yeah. He's Tall German Guy. His name is Paul Deutschman. Paul Deutschman was going to handle the bodywork because Callaway knew he needed aesthetics with aerodynamics, that would allow the little Corvette to slip its way through the atmosphere and break its own 200-mile-per-hour record. Deutschman and his team handcrafted the aero body, which kept the car looking distinctly C4 while adding a bunch of speed holes all over. It does, like, it looks cool. It I really They're appreciate sick. that they picked light purple as a mm -hmm. color for this because it, it, it looks so unique, even for the 80s. It's yeah, so all, good. Those all those Callaway cars were cool colors. There's yeah. like a cool like teal. Yeah. Under the hood, Callaway did what he did best. He boosted, tweaked, and honed the Chevy V8 into making big horsepower. 898 ponies and 772 foot pounds of torque blasting out of the twin turbocharged V8, running 22 pounds of boost in Whoa. a V8. Good <laughs> God. God. That's more than double the power of the blistering Porsche 959 and F40 and more than 200 than the McLaren F1 that wasn't even a sketch in a notebook yet. Good Lord. A lot of power. <laughs> it's also an OZ Mitos, which is really cool. The wheels. Very popular wheel in the Volkswagen community. <laughs> I bet. Every, it feels like every Corvette wheel is a popular wheel in the, in the, in the Volkswagen community. <laughs> burn. Oh, a scorching burn. The appeal of European snooty horsepowers over the blistering horses of Americans was that the interior was still refined and livable. The Countach and Testarossa were handcrafted leather ecodomes of luxury, while their American counterparts, let's say a 1971 Chevelle 454 SS, stuck you on a pleather bench seat grabbing a steel and plastic shifter. Well, that was not so with the Callaway sledgehammer. Its impressive numbers were backed up by a full, cushy leather interior, power windows and locks, a booming Bose audio system, frigid electronic air conditioning, ooh, so cold, power <laughs> sports seats, and a tucked-away roll cage to keep your bits all in one piece if you hit a guardrail. The sledgehammer was everything American muscle wanted to be with the performance Euro manufacturers were dreaming of making. Callaway also put his reputation on the line. He talked NHRA demigod John Lingenfelter into driving the sledgehammer on a 1,400-mile round trip from the Callaway shop in Connecticut to Ohio and back. They made a quick stop at the Transportation Research Center Proving Grounds in East Liberty, Ohio, a 4,500-acre site where cars are pushed to their breaking point, literally. Uh, they crash test cars and find their top speeds. When the sledgehammer was dropped, Lingenfelter pushed the turbo vet to a brain-melting 254.76 <laughs> miles per hour. Jesus. <laughs> oh my God. Easily a record and one that stood for more than a decade. 
It wasn't considered a production car, so the Yellowbird still held on tight with its 213 mile per hour run. But Callaway's trophy listed the Sledgehammer as the world's fastest street legal car, which was a record he was happy to crush. That is insane. I had no idea it went that fast. That's so fast. That's worthy of the name for sure. That's crazy. That's like over 100 miles an hour faster than either of you nerds have driven. <laughs> What's the fastest you've gone, James? 168. In a in what? A track hawk? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> it's a track <laughs> hawk, isn't it? <laughs> but sadly, not all 1980s cars were smashing records and climbing to Valhalla on the back of cocaine-fueled executives blowing money like the world was ending. Woo! Supercars were super because they had massive budgets. The 959 was awesome because Porsche was losing more than $200,000 on each car. The Countach was made without cutting a single corner. In fact, they added corners. <laughs> and the, the Testarossa was designed with a pure aesthetic in mind. But... The rest of us had to deal with the realities of the 1970s oil crisis hangover and the bevy of emissions equipment foisted upon us by a government that thought they were doing the right thing, which, you know, they were. They were. Have you seen, like, look at pictures of L.A. in the 70s. Yeah. It's disgusting. Man, things were so much better back then with brown air. (laughs) Yeah, like brown air. Every time we start an old car... At Donut, like, it's like, oh, yeah, this is why catalytic converters are good. <laughs> There's a guy on my street who has a really sick old Monte Carlo, and he'll mm-hmm. drive it, like, you know, when he's driving by my house, like, the air just changes, you know? Like, you can feel your body chemistry changing when it goes by. It's yeah. like, oh, that's a... Uh messing my dna up yeah yeah like let and it and the it, that stuff used to have lead in it yeah <laughs> that's why the, that's why there's so there were so many serial killers in the 70s and, and that's why like every baby boomer has like insane temper issues <laughs> seriously <laughs> we'll get back to more past gas but right now a word from our sponsors when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the early 80s, prototypes of the DeLorean were catching car enthusiasts' eyes and making them salivate over the idea of gold-wing doors for under $80,000. Fanboys wanted them badly and couldn't wait for the cars to be shipped over from the plant in Northern Ireland where the UK government was subsidizing the manufacturing of the cars. Demand was so high that John DeLorean thought he was on easy street and he went and got a bunch of chin implants and dated models (laughs) slash actresses. (laughs) They started pumping out DeLoreans, but they were plagued by production delays and problems at the factory. They finally got automotive journalists behind the wheel, and that's when it all really started to fall apart. In a 1981 issue of Road and Track, acclaimed automotive journalist John Lamb spent pages waxing poetic about the styling of the car, the smell of the interior leather, the placement of the pedals, on and on. But what Lamb spent pages avoiding was a sluggish performance of the admittingly bad-looking car. After 1,200 words about the new car smell and gullwing doors, he finally admits, The DeLorean is not a barn burner. <laughs> hey, kid, you want an onion? <laughs> and, and he's understating that a lot. The DeLorean was powered by a Renault V6 that coughed out a pathetic 130 horsepower. That's the same as a Honda Fit. And the silver car came in more than 1,000 pounds heavier than said fit. Yeah. The RPV engine is not a great engine. It's it was not, not, not his engine. first choice. <laughs> no, uh, it was like his fifth choice. <laughs> yeah. A modern Chevy Camaro weighs in at around the same 3,500 pounds as the DeLorean, but is stacked with more than 300 horsepower, even in the V6 form, and can do 0 to 60 in 5.5 seconds. The DeLorean takes more than 10 seconds. To get to 60 and tops out at 110. These are compact econo car numbers at best, but there were gullwing doors. 
Can you imagine if a DeLorean, like an electric DeLorean came out nowadays and they had all the extra safety equipment and still like the stainless steel body? It would be, it would weigh as much as a a Hummer EV. It would be like 9,000 pounds. (laughs) Yeah. It, it, It would, you'd have to, like you could get a, um. Probably like a tax credit because it was so heavy. <laughs> yeah, it was like a, a medium-duty vehicle. Yeah. You know? Another huge problem was build quality. The Brits had invested millions setting John DeLorean up with a swanky Northern Ireland factory, and then sales fell off the cliff as soon as people started driving the cars. DeLoreans were sitting unsold, and the UK decided that they were done financing the pipe dream. DMC had failed to recoup $175 million in investment costs. Unsold cars wound up double parked all over Ireland and the company was dead in the water. So in October of 1982, when the DeLorean's friend James Timothy Hoffman called and suggested that they sell a whopping $24 million worth of cocaine or 220 pounds, (laughs) like that's a me of cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not worth $24 million. I don't know. Let's check your celebrity net worth. It was pretty spot on last time at $13 million. (laughs) Uh, Because it was the 80s, DeLorean was all in. What DeLorean didn't know was that his buddy Hoffman was a fucking narc. An informant for the FBI and the feds were ready to go hunting for drug dealers. Did any, has anyone kicked Hoffman's ass? No, he's probably like protected. James Timothy Hoffman, you dude i'm pretty sure we in the delorean series you had the the same sentiment yeah what a narc ass what a little punk ass narc after some behind the scenes sneaky moves hoffman put delorean on a plane to los angeles and when he got off undercover agents handed him cocaine uh to go to a surprise party in a nearby hotel where the fbi was waiting john delorean fell for one of the most 80s tricks in the book he thought he could solve all his problems with hundreds of pounds of cocaine but his friend was a narc ass punk and yeah. he got And also if like the FBI entra- is giving you the drugs, dude. yeah, that's entrapment, man. Like, yeah. come on. Well, that's why he I got think we, off. I think we covered this in the DeLorean series as well. Yeah. But like, what the hell? Yeah. By the time Back to the Future made the DeLorean a household name, the company was already dead and gone. A Texas businessman named Stephen Wynn got the rights and the remaining inventory and started Frankensteining DeLoreans out of the leftovers for Back to the Future fanboys throughout the nineties. And as you probably are aware, uh, you could still get a lot of um, new OEM stock. New dead stock. New new stock from DeLorean. Uh, if you have a DeLorean and you want to restore it, you can probably get all the parts brand new from from this remaining company. It's a real shame that the car is not any good. <laughs> I know. Yeah. That like the it, solid it w- or the the gold plated one that we saw at the Peterson was really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. I think it's a cool car, but. It's like not very good. I think an electric DeLorean would be really sick if they brought that shape back mm-hmm. for electric power. That, that'd be awesome. Uh, I forget his name, but one of the guys from Hyperdrive who had the charger with the wing. Yes. Um, he's building a drift DeLorean That's right now. super oh, cool. cool. With like a tube chassis and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think his name is Alexander Caldine or something like that. I'm looking forward to seeing that thing rip. Yeah. I think that the DeLorean, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, com- it's coming back. I think it's coming back. I think it's our, it's been back already. Like people who grew up with that in the eighties are finally getting money, getting their like kit car DeLoreans made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think like the, like back to the future, like kind of ruined the DeLorean for me. At I least. think it's, it saved it. it. It saved it and like made it popular again. Like it did its job, but like if you have a DeLorean, you're, it's like, a, it's like saying like, I love back to the future. Yeah. It's like hard to, and it's, Sorry if they're, you're listening and you're a Back to the Future guy, but they're kind of dorky. <laughs> yeah. And I get a lot of messages on Instagram that are like, you got to do this. You got to do a show on the DeLorean. And it's like, dude, I don't have to. <laughs> don't, <laughs> like, it's not, it's it's cool. It's not a great car. No, I actually love, I love Back to the Future. I'm a huge BTTF f fan oh yeah if you're such a back to the future fan name every actor in back to the future uh biff marty doctor <laughs> the doctor uh, good doctor the mom the nerd dad the guy 
All right, name name the original Marty before they started doing reshoots. Uh, Wasn't it Emilio Estevez? No, it was the redhead dude, Eric. Eric Stoltz? Yeah, Eric, Eric Stoltz. It was yeah. Eric Stoltz. Yeah. The 1980s may not have been the era of supercars we wanted, but it was the era of supercars we needed. There was a gap between the smoke-chugging 1970s muscle cars and lightning-fast 90s works of art, and the cars that bridged it deserve to be celebrated. You can't jump from a 1969 El Camino to the McLaren F1 without building something amazing in between. And it's so crazy that the same company made that, those, both those cars. How cool would it be if McLaren did do a version of the El Camino at some oh point? Like they, like they did with the, what was it, the, the GNX. They were involved yeah. with that, right? Uh, the El Makino. Um, you take <laughs> you take like a, one of those like 765 long tails and you make the back a bed. Yeah. <laughs> How sick would that be? Yeah, well, it's a McLaren, so the bed is in the front. Yeah. <laughs> a frunk bed? Yeah. Power frunk. <laughs> the 80s was an era of taking big swings and figuring out the nitty-gritty later. Just like Enzo Ferrari took a chance on the GTO Evolution team working on after-school hours to build the F40. Reeves Calloway took a chance stuffing some spinny boys into a C4 Corvette. And John DeLorean took a chance. He wasn't carting around a small child's weight worth of cocaine because it made him feel good. No, well, it was a maybe, grown man's weight in cocaine. No, he only did he 24 doing... pounds. Oh. That's what he got caught with. But it was all about saving his business. It was all about the spirit of saving DeLorean. DeLorean may not have saved his company, but he was acquitted because the FBI blew the case. Whew. His car also became one of the most iconic cars in cinema right up there with Herbie the Love Bug and Bandit's Trans Am. People may not know DeLorean was a failed drug mule and, you know, fading businessman, but they sure as hell know his car. And that's what the 80s was all about, taking a big chance for a big payoff. Without the 80s, we'd never be watching YouTube videos about the upcoming pack of 300-mile-per-hour daily drivers. Without the 80s, we wouldn't be looking at all-wheel-drive electric Porsches that slam you into the back of your seat. I do love that Taycan. Mm-mm-mm. It all started with the big shoulder pads, the wild hair, and out-of-control ambitions. Right now, we're experiencing... A new golden age of cars. Supercars are insane. Regular cars are insane. But that wouldn't be possible without the 80s. Yeah, there's like a there's like a modified TRX truck by uh, Hennessy that does like a 3.2 zero to 60. <laughs> yeah. A truck. Yeah, yeah it weighs like 5,000 pounds. But still, like, yeah, things are just so insane now. <sighs> what a time. What a time, huh? What a time to be a guy. <laughs> well thank you so much for listening to this episode of pass gas it's a good time as always big thanks to our producer yeah thomas willette and our other producer and editor couldn't do it without her bridget davies davies Follow my my mans on Instagram at Joe G Weber and James Pumphrey. Follow these follow these men wherever you find them, wherever you encounter them on social media. Follow me at Nolan J Sykes. Write us an email, passgas at donutmedia.com. Uh, just tell us how we're doing. All right. Well, thank you for listening. You're beautiful. Have a good good day. <laughs> <laughs> thank I you. Love you. And as always, keep it juiced. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. 
Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com slash audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com slash audio. That's carshield.com slash audio.